Good morning. Welcome uh, to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. I wanted to uh, formally and humbly apologize for there being no coffee this morning. I know it ruined many mornings, and so hopefully uh, by, the, by the end of this service, uh, your spirits will be back up. So, uh, or maybe they did get coffee going. The machine kept breaking on us, so if there's no coffee, that's, that's the reason why. Uh, welcome to spring. Not only welcome to Hiawatha, but welcome to spring. It's finally starting to feel like it, especially after a tough week. I uh, welcomed everyone to spring and this great weather uh, about a month ago. And then famous last words of a Minnesotan, we got a couple days of snow and lots of uh, bad weather. But it is springtime. And uh, do you know that there's actually a second season that we have just begun? Just begun. Anyone know? Road construction. There's actually a third season, I guess. Uh, I also want to welcome you to wedding season. Wedding season. Some of you might be that excited about uh, wedding season coming up. Usually spring and summer, uh, many people get married. It's a great time of year. Uh, there's about 10 couples here at Hiawatha that have just got married or are, are getting married uh, this coming wedding season. So I know it's very... Uh, in, in a lot of people's minds right now, many of you are probably visiting family or loved ones, uh, friends who are getting married this spring uh, or summer as well. I actually get to officiate my first wedding coming up in uh, just over a month. So wedding season or, or going to a wedding specifically can, can really be a great time for us to celebrate with uh, friends and loved ones, uh, celebrate their love for each other and to join with them as they commit themselves to each other for life. But sadly, as, as all of us know, and some of us very personally, or uh, this has been a big part of their, their past, uh, all marriages don't last. Conflict and sin enter the picture, and soon separation become, can come between the couple. It starts off emotionally, relationally, and if, uh, conf- or if uh, reconciliation and forgiveness don't happen, it can soon move in to a physical separation as well. Sadly, I've, I've had to walk through a number of, of friends and loved ones going through or having gone through divorce, through the devastation that it brings. And as we talk, I often hear them say, what is the point of marriage? If so many people get hurt by marriage, if not all marriages work out, what is the point of marriage? It's a common, common question asked. Lots of uh, secular people, even well, a lot of secular people, especially weighing in, you see a lot online or all over the place, people saying that marriage is not really necessary, that it's archaic, that it's uh, just setting you up for failure, it's not needed. So we see that a lot. And even though marriages can fall apart, and many of you in this room have been affected by uh, broken marriages, whether just horrible marriages or whether divorce, whether that's been your story whether it's been your parents or, or loved ones. Even though that is the case, even though many of us have experienced great hurt and heartache because of broken marriages, marriage is still a beautiful and important thing because of what it points to. So to answer the question, what, what is the point of marriage? What is marriage all about? We would say, ultimately, marriage is about God. We would say that as creator of marriage, God, he gets to define what it is and what it's ultimately for. I'm married. I have a fantastic wife. We have a a great marriage. And marriage does come with lots and lots of of benefits, for sure. 
companionship, intimacy, friendship, security, and many more. But as we read the Bible, we see that God has something even greater than all these things when he created marriage. Marriage ultimately, according to the Bible, is a picture of God and his love for us. As we sang about all morning about God's great, great, great love for us, he said, in marriage, you're going to see an example of how I love you. Prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament writes, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And this, this theme of marriage being about God's love for us becomes even more clear and more defined in the New Testament as we see that marriage ultimately points to Jesus and his love for his church. Ephesians 5 says, This mystery is profound. So the writer has been writing about husbands and wives and how they should interact and about marriage. This mystery is profound, he says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So whenever we see beauty, whenever we see friendship, faithfulness, companionship, fidelity, sacrificial love, intimacy, and unity within marriage, Christians think and Christians look at that and they say, that's how my God loves me. That's how Jesus adores me. That's how Jesus cares for me, protects me, respects me, and provides for his bride, the church. And then when we see unhealthy marriages, when we see brokenness and sin, unfaithfulness, anger, abuse, separation, apathy, or any other imperfect aspect of marriage, we again look to Christ, but this time as the remedy, as the only perfect spouse. So both with good marriages and with bad marriages, we eventually are brought back to Jesus. We're either seeing a physical example of the way that Jesus perfectly loves us, the church, his bride, or we're seeing a bad example. We're seeing how sin has tainted and marred and broken our relationships and our marriages. And we're seeing, or, and we should look back to him as the only true, faithful, and loving spouse. Today we're going to get to see both sides. We're going to, get, going to see a healthy relationship and uh, our two characters, the king and his bride, we're going to see a bunch of ways that their, their marriage is healthy, but we're also going to see how they're also imperfect. We're going to see how sin has, has broken aspects of their marriage, how they're not perfect. We've been in a series in the Old Testament, a book that's called Song of Solomon, and it's a love dialogue between two characters, between the king and his bride, between King Solomon and his queen, written nearly 3,000 years ago poetically describing their relationship. This week's passage, we're going to see reconciliation. We're going to see forgiveness. We're going to see where there was brokenness, where there was separation, and them being apart, we're going to see them come together. We're going to see their apartness being remedied. We're going to see reconciliation between the two and see them reunite. And in this, the king reminds his bride, and he's going to say to her, that she is the only one for him. So despite being separated, despite them being apart, despite there being sin and conflict in between them, he reminds her that she's the only one for him, that he's a faithful spouse to her. We're entitling today's sermon, You Are the Only One. And we'll later see how not only does the king promise this to his bride, but the king of the universe 
Jesus Christ promises these same words to his bride, the church. Especially if today is your very first week at Hiawatha, or if you haven't uh, studied Song of Solomon too much, I want to give a, a few disclaimers before we jump in. Otherwise, it's going to be very confusing. It's already very, very confusing. And without some of these disclaimers, uh, it might even, yeah, it's just going to be ridiculously hard to understand. First thing is we need to remember what, what we're reading. So again, we're reading a poem. So this genre is poetry. The book of Song of Solomon is, uh, in it, Solomon is poetically describing his love for his bride. It's not literal. Because if it was literal, it would look something like this. So we're going to see later, we saw the same description earlier on in Song of Solomon. He describes his bride using all this language. And if this was literal, if this wasn't poetry, she would look something like that, and we would all say, Solomon, you are blind. She, she is not beautiful. But, so we need to understand that this is poetry. We're reading poetry similarly to if we were reading something like Shakespeare, okay, written, uh, Song of Solomon, not even written in our language, but at least... Uh, Shakespeare, you know, it's written in our language, but it's poetry often, and it's written in a different time, and it's written in a different culture. So we can understand that if we're going to read this book, written 3,000 years ago, in a different language, in a different culture, and it's poetry, there's going to be uh, stuff like this. And so we need to wade through it, we need to understand what we're reading. And the second disclaimer before we get started is that even though throughout this book, much of the time, our characters are giving us a great godly example of friendship, of love, of marriage, of relationship, we're going to see today especially that they're far from perfect, that they're broken, that they're sinful, and that they are, uh, yeah, not perfect. We see, we're, we're going to see that today in Song of Solomon, and we also see it in our, also in uh, other parts of Scripture that describe King Solomon especially. And this is a pattern all throughout the Bible, something that we should really get, is that God uses broken, messed up, sinful people. He does it again and again and again, all throughout this book. He's using not perfect people, not amazing people. He's usually using people that are very sinful and have some pretty big problems, some pretty big weaknesses. God using imperfect, messed up people to point ahead to the one who will succeed where they have all failed. So essentially the whole Bible is a big flashing sign that points to Jesus. So we don't look at Solomon today or in previous weeks or in coming weeks and say, wow, what an amazing king. What a great husband. What a great lover. What a great friend. Let's be like him because he's so great. But rather, our goal is to see Jesus, the true and better Solomon, the ultimate Solomon that loves his bride perfectly and who is faithful and victorious where Solomon fails. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, speaking of himself, said, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So he's speaking to Jews who knew about King Solomon, one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history. And Jesus says, Someone even greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is a true and better Solomon. He's the ultimate Solomon. He's a king who has even greater wisdom than the wisest king ever. He's a king who brings a peace that even Solomon's reign couldn't bring. Jesus is the ultimate king coming from the line of David. He's the king who perfectly loves his bride 
with sacrifice and faithfulness where Solomon failed. All right, as we begin our story, our passage today, we're going to set it up. Again, remember, we're reading a love story, a love dialogue, essentially, between our two main characters, between the king and his bride. So, so far in Song of Solomon, we've seen their relationship start with attraction and love starting to grow. They move from courtship into engagement, and then we, see, we saw their wedding, and then it moves into their honeymoon and consummation on their wedding night. And just a few weeks ago, we saw a passage where there was this marital conflict leading to them being separated, leading to them being apart. And this week, we're going to see them reconciling, them forgiving each other and overcoming this obstacle of separation. So that kind of gives you a nice little framework for where we've been and where we're going so far in Song of Solomon. And all throughout this love story, we've seen that separation is one of the biggest enemies in this story. It's one of the biggest challenges that this couple has to continue to overcome. When they're engaged, they don't want to be apart from each other. They long for the day when they can finally be together. And now even after their marriage, they have a fight, they have conflict, they sin against each other, and there's separation again, and they have to fight against that. And we're reminded that marriage, and we're reminded, sorry, and when we're reminded that marriage is a reflection of our relationship with Jesus, we understand and realize even more that the problem separation from Jesus brings. All right, we're going to read our passage today. We are in Song of Solomon 6, starting in uh, verse 4 through verse 13. It'll be up there on the screen. It's also in your handout. He starts by speaking of her. He says, You are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners, Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing, all of them bearing twins. Not one, not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and call her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praise her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return that we may look upon you. Why would you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story, this example of marriage, both in its flaws as well as in its beautiful example of of forgiveness and reconciliation and sacrificial love. I thank you that it ultimately points ahead to you. God, we pray that you would help us to see that. Help us to understand your love even greater through this passage. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so as we have been uh, throughout Song of Solomon, we're going to look at this passage through two lenses. 
First, we're going to start with the human lens. So what, is, what does this passage teach us about reconciliation and forgiveness? If you've been married for more than five minutes or in a relationship with someone, you know that relationships aren't perfect. You know that, recon, that uh, conflict and problems, people sinning against each other, is inevitable. So what does this passage teach us about how we can be reconciled, how we can forgive each other? Solomon begins our passage today again, like he has previously, by speaking about his wife's beauty. He compliments her body and uses great specifics. So he doesn't just come to her and say, yeah, I know we've been fighting, but babe, you're really hot, and just say something really vague and really general, and that just melts her heart and they're all back together. But instead, he compliments her, showing great thoughtfulness, showing that he cares deeply about her. He starts off in verse 4, you are beautiful as Tirza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. So he speaks about her, her beauty, and summarizes it by mentioning two great cities. So think of this as, as someone complimenting their spouse by saying, your beauty is, is just mesmerizing. Like if I look upon the Taj Mahal or uh, Google's new headquarters or some uh, amazing building that just brings about awe and amazement. He says, your love is awesome as an army with banners. So here again, think of, you know, here's a picture. Kind of hard to see, but think about, you know, maybe in a, a movie that you've seen where there's some type of war and this just amazing, huge army shows up and you're just in awe. You're just inspired. You, your heart even stops looking at the power, the, the amazement of that. So he's, he's, he's speaking like that about his wife's beauty. Takes his breath away. It's awesome. He continues in verse 5. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. So he's saying, your eyes, they're so beautiful that I, I just can't take it anymore. I have to turn away. Or you have to turn away. Kind of reminded me of uh, in the movie Lion King, where the hyenas are kind of talking back and forth. And the one uh, hyena says, Mufasa. And the other guy kind of shakes and goes, ooh, say it again. Mufasa. So it's kind of like that. I'm, I'm looking into your eyes, and they're so mesmerizing. They're so beautiful. They're taking my breath away. They overwhelm me. Turn away. I can't handle it anymore. But then turn back, because I want to see him again. As the king continues to, to describe his wife in great detail, her beauty, he actually repeats a bunch of lines that he used on their wedding night. So as they're reconciling, as they're forgiving each other, as they're going from being apart and separated to being together, he's saying, remember our wedding. Remember our wedding night. Remember my love for you that night. He's telling her that nothing has changed. Despite conflict and distance, his love for her has remained true. He still loves her just like the day of their wedding. He's committed to her, and his vows spoken at their wedding remain the same even after a fight, even after conflict has separated them for a time. He continues, and he reminds her of his great desires for her. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. So, speak, so this uh, place, Gilead, had these, uh, was known for having these really amazing sheep that had uh, brown, brown wool, different than, than maybe other sheep. So he's saying, you have beautiful hair. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. So your teeth are beautiful and they're clean, he's telling her. All of them bears twins. Not one among them has lost its young. 
He's saying, you have great teeth, and you have all your teeth, which was maybe not always common for everyone to have all their teeth back then. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. So he acknowledges her, her makeup, maybe, or just uh, the blush of her cheeks. Later, he continues, and he, he speaks of her uniqueness. She is, like un, she is unlike any other in the entire land. Verse 10, who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? So just like there is one moon in the night sky, he only has eyes for his bride, he's telling here. Just as the magnificent sunlight takes over the sky, make it impossible to see anything else, any of the other stars or things that are in the, in the sky. His wife's beauty consumes his thoughts and mind, making him unable to think of anything else. And again, he reminds her that her beauty brings about the heart-stopping awe as if staring a mighty army in the face. As the passage continues, we're reminded of Solomon's imperfection. Just like each one of us and just like every character we see in the Bible, minus Jesus. God has given Solomon great wealth and great power, great prosperity and wisdom. We see from other books of the Bible that describe his life. Yet Solomon eventually begins to love his gifts more than the gift giver. We see that he took uh, in his life many different wives and concubines, and the Bible actually doesn't skirt this, but actually describes how this sin by Solomon led to his downfall. In 1 Kings, that describes uh, King Solomon's reign, we read, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you should not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. So again, or just to make clear here, God's not saying no inter interracial marriage or marrying people from different countries. He's not saying that at all. He goes on to clarify exactly why he's saying this specifically to his people. For surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. So God warned Solomon, especially as well as his people, be careful about marrying people of, of other tribes and other ethnicities and other nations because they have different gods and they're going to turn your heart from worshiping me into worshiping these false gods. And God was right. This is what happened. Verse 4, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not holy, true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Later on in the story, we see that this sin actually splits the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is never the same after that. And so we see great, great, great pain coming out of Solomon's infidelity and his polygamy, him not listening to God, and ultimately him, him turning his heart away from worshiping God and worshiping the gods of his many wives. But before we continue and to see how Solomon continues to speak about his wife, before we continue and see how the couple is reconciled and how they forgive each other, I want to make a few qualifications, especially after just reading and knowing uh, what Solomon did and, and what type of a king he was. First thing, just because Solomon isn't perfect doesn't mean that what he's saying can't be true. Nor does it mean that God still can't use him as an example. 
I know when I read this, I had a hard time thinking anything that Solomon says or does can be good after seeing his horrible lust and pride and selfishness. But God does this all the time, doesn't he? He uses messed up, sinful, broken people all throughout Scripture to show us both good and bad examples. Pick nearly any character in the Bible and you'll see that they're messed up, they're flawed, they're broken, they rebel against God. And that's partly the point, right? If all the Bible was was just full of a bunch of heroes, people that never messed up, we would have no hope, right? We'd think, oh man, I can't be like that perfect king or perfect husband or perfect prophet or perfect warrior. So it's not about us. It's not about Moses being the best speaker. It's not about David being the best king. It's not about Peter being the greatest disciple. All those guys had huge failures, and the Bible records them, yet God still uses them. And we can still learn from them, just like today we can learn from an imperfect husband, an imperfect Solomon. Secondly, we can easily judge Solomon, and we probably should to some extent, right? He's got a harem, and right now in, in, in this story he has dozens and dozens and dozens of women, and later on in his life, he'll have hundreds of women. Solomon had a literal harem, while our harems are in our minds, or on our laptops, or in our pasts. Many of us have baggage and have histories full of all kinds of sexual sin and lust, and are daily tempted with an unending barrage of porn being thrown our way. But this doesn't mean that we can't really mean it when we look at our spouse in our eyes and we tell her or him, you are the only one for me. You truly are the most beautiful. You are the only one for us. Or maybe think of it this way, in spiritual terms. If marriage refers to us and our relationship with God, think of it this way. We've rebelled against God. We've been unfaithful to him a million different times. We've turned to other spouses essentially, spiritual, spiritual lovers, and said, you are better than Jesus. You are greater than Jesus. You are more fulfilling than Jesus. You are more beautiful than him. Yet when we repent and turn back to Jesus and say, Jesus, you really are perfect. You really are better than what I was worshiping, what I was wanting, what I was desiring. You are the most beautiful of any of the things that I've tried. You are the only one for me. That's the Christian life, right? That's what we do again and again and again. So when we repent of our unfaithfulness to our spiritual husband, when we tell Jesus that we were wrong to turn our backs on him, thinking that we could get better pleasure, better love, better fulfillment, or better joy apart from him, in repentance we can still turn to him and, and really mean it when we say, Jesus, you are the only one. You are beautiful. You are the one that I want. So even though Solomon's harem is horribly sinful, we can begin to understand how he can believe and say to his bride that she is perfect and that she is the only one for him. Finally, the third thing, as we have been doing this whole series and will continue to do as we finish Song of Solomon, we're ultimately looking to Christ, not Solomon, as the perfect husband, king, or friend. We're looking to Jesus, the true and better Solomon, the true and better husband. Where Solomon was imperfect, Jesus is perfect. Where Solomon fails, Jesus has victory. Where Solomon's love is marred by sin, Jesus' love for us is pure and holy and singular.
So Solomon's story continues. We're going to see that his situation isn't perfect. He lets selfishness and lust and pride lead him astray. And the Bible doesn't condone what he does, but speaks very frankly about the sin and the destruction that his polygamy brings. And he even admits it later on in life in the book of Ecclesiastes. So now as we uh, continue to read Song of Solomon, as he, as he continues to describe his wife's beauty in comparison to the other queens and concubines, the greatest way that we can read this today is to see how Jesus' love purely, sorry, is to see how Jesus loves purely and faithfully while Solomon fails. Jesus loves his church with a singular faithful love that is just hinted at here with Solomon and his bride. He continues in verse 8, speaking to his wife. He says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praise her. The king reminds her that she is perfect in his eyes, that she's the one that he loves above all else. And he continues to compliment her and again speaks of her uniqueness. She is better, even better than the queens, even better than royalty, even better than every single woman in all of the kingdom. The king makes her his standard of beauty. There are many, many beautiful women in his court and in his kingdom, but he says, you are the perfect one. You are beautiful. You are the definition of a beauty. If you remember earlier on in this story, we know that she actually isn't perfect, as, as we probably could guess, as, as no one is perfect. We see that she actually has some flaws, or she's, she has insecurities. She's embarrassed about parts of her body. And earlier on in the story, Solomon talks about those. He says, no, you really are perfect. Those flaws you think you have, I actually think that they're great. You really are perfect. In my eyes, I love you. And he chooses to make her his standard of beauty. He says, even though you think you're flawed, you are the definition of what perfection is. And nothing compares to you, my bride. Not the other concubines, not any other beautiful woman in this kingdom, not even the queens. No one compares to you. Practically, this means husbands, wives, do this for your spouses. Make them your definition of what beauty is and what worth is is husbands only have eyes for your wife it's a choice it's a tough choice at times but it is a choice you're not an animal that can't control his eyes or or his urges like maybe pop culture teaches us and if you're a christian you have the exact same holy spirit that lived in and empowered jesus christ to live a perfect sinless lust-free life I said this before and i'll say it again my wife She's got brown hair, blue eyes, she's short. So that's what my definition of beauty is. If your wife is tall and blonde, then that's your standard of beauty. If your wife is pregnant, then she is your standard of what true beauty really is. And wives similarly do the same thing. Love the husband that God has given you. Don't compare your husband with other men. Be content, be satisfied with the man God has given you. Don't fantasize or dream about a different husband, a better husband. If your husband, if he's a computer program, programmer, 
and you're thankful for that. You're satisfied with that. If he works with his hands and he's a blue-collar worker, then that's what's attractive to you. If he's a poet and he can write you great love songs, then you're thankful for, for that. And all of us, whether you're married or not, we're all so tempted to be dissatisfied, to be discontent with life and with what we have. We always want something greater, something more. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we can admit that as soon as we get it, or very soon after we get it, we're no longer content and we want something more. As Christians, we're called to remember God's love for us and the gospel and to be satisfied and content in all areas of our lives. This includes our marriage. This includes our friendships. This includes our relationship status. And the reason that we do this, the reason that we are content with what we have, the reason that we call our spouse beautiful and the only one and pure and perfect, not because Solomon does it, or at least tries to do it, but it's because that's the way that God loves you. That's the way that Jesus sees you, church. That's the way that Jesus speaks of us. Jesus makes us beautiful. He makes us perfect through his union with him. And he doesn't compare us with, us with others. He doesn't call us his perfect one and then a few days later leave us and goes and try to find another people, another church that will please him more, that will look better, that will be more attractive. But rather he is a faithful God, a faithful spouse with a singular love for us. All right, now to the very crystal clear part of our passage. Note sarcasm there. Uh, starting in verse 11, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set, set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. All right, I'll be, I'll be very honest with you. We don't really know what's going on in these last three verses. There's almost as many thoughts about these verses as there are commentaries out there. So I'm going to give you a few examples of what maybe is going on here and let you, let you know which one I think it is. But uh, just to be clear, there's many Jesus-loving scholars and theologians out there who disagree about what's going on. So first of all, even in these first two verses, or yeah, 11 and 12, we're not even sure who's speaking. We don't know if it's, he, if it's he or if it's she. Different Bible translations use different things. ESV that we use, they say she, but other translations think that's actually Solomon speaking. But either way, whether it's him or whether it's her speaking, we see that they're overcoming conflict and separation and their love and desire for each other is consuming them, forcing out their feelings of hurt, anger, and pain. It's not completely gone, but we see that through reconciliation and forgiveness that those feelings are going away, new feelings, the, the remembrance of their love is coming back. And most of us have experienced this, right? To some extent, whether we're fighting with a friend or a family member, or a spouse. We have this type of conflict. And with both parties, when they're being stubborn, when they're not giving in, when they're fighting, it can be really tough. But when one party humbles themselves, repents, moves towards the other party, and says, I'm sorry. Sorry for what I did. I am, I am broken about it. I apologize. I need your forgiveness. Most of the time, in that moment, you can't help but forgive them. You can't help but want to reconcile. Most of the time, that's the case for us. This happens often in our marriages, right? And this is what we see here in this passage, a, a marriage 
where it's been broken and where there's been separation, coming together through this type of, of forgiveness. The reasons that Christians can forgive each other is because we've been forgiven of so much, so much more by God. In Ephesians 4, speaking to Christians, it writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. So this is Paul writing a letter to a church saying, Love each other deeply and forgive each other. And he doesn't say, just do that because that's what good Christians do. He says, do that because in Christ, God has forgiven you. We've been forgiven of so much more. Thus, how can we not naturally forgive each other? Christians forgive because we've been forgiven. Think of the parable of the unforgiving servant. Okay, A servant who owed lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes of money was forgiven by the king. And that's us. And so we go out and then we choose to forgive much, much, much smaller offenses, whether that's within our marriage or whether that's with family, friends, coworkers. I had two friends in college who handled conflict very differently. One friend dug his heels in, was very stubborn, would fight to the death, even if he was 95% responsible for, for the fight, for the conflict, for the sin. And I had another friend who did the exact opposite. He very quickly would humble himself. He would apologize for what he did, even if he was only 5% uh, responsible for the conflict. He would approach me and uh, apologize, ask for my forgiveness. And even if I didn't want to, even if I was still being stubborn and still wanted to fight, it was really hard for me to not forgive him because of his posture, because his humbleness overcame me and I remembered my great love that I had for him. This friend got the gospel. This friend knew that he had an indefinite debt, an infinite debt that he had been forgiven, and so he let go of much smaller debts, much smaller sins being committed against him. And he was okay admitting that he was wrong because he didn't get his self-worth from being a great arguer, from, for being all, always right. He got his worth and his identity from who he was in Christ. So whether in friendships, familial relationships, co-workers, or even within marriage, Christians look to their God who moved towards them. He didn't wait for us to humble ourselves and come to ask him for forgiveness, but rather he died for us while we were still sinners. He offered us forgiveness when we didn't even want it, when we were being stubborn and digging our heels in. And that pursuit, our God's great love and forgiveness, that's what melts our stubborn and prideful hearts and what leads to reconciliation with our God and then reconciliation back with our spouses, friends, family members. Now for the next part of the passage that's tough to understand. If you're confused, welcome to the club. Verse 13 and 14. Return, 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 O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? So there's many different views on what's going on here. I'll briefly cover a few of them, and then we'll go from there. First of all, this others could just be uh, the, the, the daughters of Jerusalem, these bridesmaids, these, these friends of uh, the bride, basically just saying they're, they're uh, affirming what Solomon had just said about his wife and saying, Yes, she really is beautiful. She really is that great. Come back here and be with us because we want to gaze upon your beauty. Maybe like bridesmaids really like to be around the bride on her wedding day because she's so beautiful 
and gracious and, and you just want to be around her. If that's the case, then Solomon's responding uh, essentially by saying, that's great, I'm glad that you love her beauty, but we have been separated. We were just fighting and now we've reconciled, we forgave each other, we're going to go back to our place and that's just for me and her, not for all of her girlfriends to come along with, which that's what's getting at with the, the dance between two armies. Or maybe this is something, uh, some other people think that maybe these others are actually just men in general because uh, that you is a masculine plural. So some people think maybe he's, uh, or these others are, are men that are looking at this beautiful queen and essentially saying, come back here. We want to look at you. We want to gaze at you. We want to, you know, check you out. Walk in front of us. Do a dance for us. And then as a good husband, Solomon is responding by saying, why are you looking upon my bride her allegiance is to me. She is my wife. I am hers. She is mine. And no, she's not going to dance in front of you. Only for me. So he's responding as a protective, passionate, loving husband sh should. So whichever view we hold about uh, these last couple of verses, we'll see that after they're reconciled and have forgiven each other and made up, there's still a pull from the outside to keep them separated. And Solomon's fighting against that. The dance... Is just for them, not for others. All right, we've looked at the human side of, of Song of Solomon 6 here. Now we're going to look at it from a divine side. We're going to look at this passage, seeing how if marriage is ultimately about God's relationship with us, with Jesus' relationship with the church, then what does this teach us about him and about us? What does Song 6 teach us about how Jesus loves us, forgives us, protects us, and moves towards us? few things here. From the divine side, first we see that Jesus reconciles us to himself. Jesus offers us forgiveness. So we're going to read a passage from Ephesians. As we read this, I want you to think of the story that we just read. Think of what was going on. And now we're going to read uh, in Ephesians 2, speaking of us as the church. Starting verse 13, but now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. So we see that we, apart from Christ, before we became Christians, we were once far off, just like there was separation in our story today. That there was hostility between us and our God. But now through the cross, we are brought near to Christ. We are now reconciled to our God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the true and faithful spouse. Where Solomon failed, Jesus is victorious. And we see that Jesus is a faithful spouse even when we are not. Even when his bride, his wife, his queen is unfaithful to him. Many of us here have experienced infidelity and unfaithfulness, whether that's in our own relationships, whether that's in our own marriages, whether it happened with our parents or, or loved ones or friends. And we hear about God being a husband, we wonder, well, I've seen so many horrible examples of marriage. I don't even know if I want to think of Jesus as a husband because I've seen 
so many broken marriages, so many instances of infidelity. And so we wonder, some of us wonder, very deeply and very real, is Jesus like that? But he's not. In verse 9, we see that Jesus speaks this to us. He speaks this to his bride. He says, you are the only one. Jesus has a singular love for his church. A question that maybe many of us have wondered. Romans 3.3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? What if we're unfaithful to God? What if we're not a great Christian? What if we deny Jesus or we're embarrassed by him? What if we sin a lot? What if we run away from him for a season? Does our unfaithfulness nullify Jesus being a faithful husband to us? Romans 3 answers this. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Later on in Romans, they pick this up again. Listen to how God loves you, even as an unfaithful spouse. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we were unfaithful ones, that's when Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, not just unfaithful, not just cheating on God, but we were even his enemies, while we were his enemies, it says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So we can be forgiven. We can be reconciled to our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the cross. And he offers that to us. Whether for the very first time today, or whether it's for the millionth time, or whether you have been running from Christ for a long time, or there's lots of unconfessed, deep sin in your life that you haven't been victorious of, he offers, for, offers forgiveness for that, and he offers reconciliation through the cross. And finally, despite us not being perfect, despite us not being pure, Jesus makes us perfect. And he calls us that, blameless, sinless, shameless and perfect. Unlike Solomon, Jesus doesn't call us perfect or just call us pure with some type of blind love, but rather Jesus makes his bride pure. He makes his bride spiritually perfect and blameless and sinless and without shame. Jesus, again, he says to his church these words, you are my perfect one and you are pure, like we see in Song of Solomon 6, 9. Jesus chose us. Ephesians 1 says, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen again to what Jesus does for his church. Listen to how he makes us pure, how he washes us, how he makes us holy. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and without blemish. For some of us, that's easy to believe, and that's great. For some of us, that might be really hard to believe. We know our brokenness. We know our sin. We know the horrible things that we have done. We know that sin is reigning uh, over us in our lives. We have been defeated by it. We're chained to certain sins, even though we're Christians. And we feel like we're really, we really can't believe that. But this is what Jesus does for us. He sanctifies us. He cleanses us. And he makes us clean without spot, without blemish, and holy. So as we leave here today, how do we apply this to our lives? How does the gospel change how we view God and how we live? First thing is, just as our passage spoke to us today, be reconciled to Christ. Whether it's the first time today, whether you didn't realize that God could forgive your sins, that he could reconcile you back to himself, you know that you are an unfaithful spouse, you know that you have run away from God, that you've cheated on him. He offers you reconciliation and for forgiveness. Do that today for the first time or for the millionth time. And secondly, out of that, be thankful and grateful that our God is a faithful God, that he has a singular love for us, his church. Let this lead us to worship, worshiping our God who only loves us, who won't leave us when we're imperfect, when we're ugly, when we're sinful. And unlike us, Jesus is faithful. And finally, flowing out of one and two, be reconciled to and forgive others, whether that's your spouse, whether that's a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor. Be reconciled to them. Forgive them because you have been forgiven by your God. Do it just like it has been done to you. And when it's hard for you to do it, look back and remember how it's been done to you. How you have been forgiven. How you have been reconciled back to your God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you again for your words and that we worship a God who is faithful to us. You don't give up on us even when we're unfaithful. Even when we run from you. Even when we want another spouse or another shiny object or another pleasure that we think will be greater than you. Thank you for your faithfulness and we pray that your forgiveness would lead us to repentance. Your kindness would lead us to denying our old loves and cling completely to you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.